Here's a shocker. You live in a watershed, organized by a watershed. And everybody goes, whoa, you know, their <laughs> minds are blown. And sometimes it's that really simple tick that just, it shifts our thinking. Hi, I'm Benji Ross. And I'm Anna Perpera. And we want to welcome you to Awakening Lands. Where we aim to give land a voice and share stories of humans who are learning to live in ways that nurture and animate life. Here, you'll find unfolding stories of regeneration that are happening all over the planet. And feel the story of humans learning to come home. We will highlight the people working to create the possibility of regenerating whole landscapes. We're calling these people landscape leaders. The easiest way to spot them is by their devotion to their people in place. They are essential to regeneration, and we want to share their stories in order for them to see one another and for us all to see the pathways they've taken. It's in this way we'll also see entire bioregional narratives coming to life. And we're aiming to do more than tell stories. The Earth needs her humans to come together as one, to become more than we've been. Let's co-create the spaces to do so. Let's author the stories that show us how. Are you in? Okay, so welcome everybody. Today we are going to be interviewing Brandon Letzinger of Cascadia, fresh off of the uh, Regenerate Cascadia Bioregional Activation Tour. He's looking rested and he's been passionate about bioregionalism for a really long time. Uh, he's been part of the, the movement in Cascadia. He works as a grumpy Sasquatch at the Department of Bioregion, a title that I think he gave himself or somebody in the department gave him. Uh, he is also the wheezy, sneezy, covered in dust proprietor of Horizon Books on Capitol Hill, which is Seattle's longest running used bookstore. We're going to be asking him more questions about that, uh, dig into the bottom of that one. Uh, he also operates a pretty big art space uh, in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle. Uh, he was the founding director uh, of Cascadia Now uh, when he was in college. Uh, we'll ask about that as well. Former board member of the People's Harm Reduction Alliance, the largest peer-run and managed needle exchange program in the United States, co-founder of the Seattle Street Medical Collective. His journey has taught him a lot about democratic ways of living, human rights, sustainability. He's traveled all over the world. His background is really quite impressive. He clearly has a lot of energy. I do know that he loves coffee. Maybe that that gets him through. Uh, maybe that'll come up in the interview as well. Uh, Brandon, with that, welcome. How are you doing today? Doing all right. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Uh, yeah, it's great to have yeah, you. Thanks for being here. So, Brandon, we like to start out with um, sharing what we're grateful for. I'm grateful for many things. And if I had to name a couple of them, um, I'm certainly grateful probably for the, the wide community of people who help support my work. Um, I feel very grateful to be able to do the work that I do. And um, I think the recent Regenerate Cascadia Activation Tour and Summit was a really nice example of that, that I think that probably realistically took the work of more than 140 people, you know, helping plan and organize for months. And then to have it all come together in a summit, I think we had more than 34 sessions and presentations, and it was just a really wonderful experience. And I, you know, at each stop, I was blown away by the quality of the people. Operated really early on from the idea and principle that 
the people there were the right people to be there. And um, the quality of people who came out was people who had been active doing regenerative work for decades. We had a lot of original people from the early Cascadia Bioregional Congresses, again, who have been active for decades. And so for them to come out and actually support and buy in for uh, Regenerate Cascadia and the work that we were doing, the work that Joe Brewer was doing, was a really powerful process. And then to have them, um, we had about 27 different people give sessions over the weekend, like world-class people every time. And so to have that kind of quality and buy-in was really powerful. So just very grateful for, I think, all of the people um, throughout Cascadia um, that kind of make this work possible. Benji, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for, as we've done more and more of these interviews and just gotten the opportunity to meet people and hear more of their story. I'm just so uh, grateful to be in this mix uh, and to be getting to know these people that uh, are role models in in so many ways. Yeah, just feeling like the support scaffolding for, for all of us to become the people who we want to be and to serve this movement in the ways we want to serve is there. So I'm just grateful for that. Anna, you want to go next? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I am currently in Florida visiting some family. So I'm grateful to be able to see family, even those that live far away. Um, it's just a wonderful time of year to be spending with with everyone. In this interview, uh, we want to uh, get, get to know the character of Brandon Letzinger a little bit. Uh, get to know your background, some of the things, see some of the things that make you you because you've got a pretty big impact, positive impact. Uh, I think it's really inspiring and orienting for landscape leaders to, to see how you became who you are, uh, the kind of person that, that does the, the good things that you're doing. Super helpful for aspiring leaders as well to see that sort of thing. Uh, and mm-hmm. to see the character that you are with embedded within the story of regenerating Cascadia too. So we could see the, the movement of regenerating Cascadia in some sense through its characters. And so today we're just going to, you know, get to know you a little bit better. And so to start things off, how long have you been in the bookstore? Uh, and, and what's the backstory there? Is that, were you born in that bookstore or what's some of the history there? I've probably been working. So Horizon Books um, was founded and run by kind of a, a local Seattle bookstoreite named Donald Glover. And so he started that in 1971 uh, the primary store was always on 15th uh, on Capitol Hill, which is kind of a central location here in Seattle. And so it's been operating for probably more than 50 years. And uh, my entry into that was that my dad actually ran a different bookstore, which was called Recollection Books. And Recollection Books was started as kind of a little bit more of a general store that he had branched out to start. And it was on the the Ave, which is kind of a main thoroughfare in the in the U district so close to the University of Washington and at that point it was you know I was in middle school but even before that yeah I guess that could go in a lot of different directions but for Horizon Books specifically I actually grew up there that was like kind of my college job uh was working in a in a used bookstore and and working there so my parents actually started a different store which was um called Left Bank Books. And that's actually one of Seattle's oldest bookstores, I think started in 1972 or 1973 by Stan Iverson. And that's specifically 
uh, an anarchist bookstore in Pike Place Market, another kind of main thoroughfare. And so my parents actually met, my mom lived in the Haight Street um, in San Francisco and was hitchhiking up and met my dad while hitchhiking um, when he was working at Left Bank. And so they ran the Left Bank Press, which, um, yeah, they do Revolution in Seattle and publish radical books um, through that. So you uh, started to, your family really was a big influence on you, I'm guessing, because it sounds like, you know, you you share a lot of the same I- ideologies. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up in that environment? My my parents, I, I didn't know a lot about my parents until later in life. I would say probably till through middle school, maybe even into high school. And um, my parents were always just kind of parents. I, I think that I lived a very quintessentially normal life. I think it was a little bit flipped in that my mom was traditionally the breadwinner of the family and my dad ran a used bookstore. But what that also meant is that my dad was able to take a lot of time to spend with me. So I, I felt very supported and very close with my parents growing up. And it meant that when I decided, so I got really into chess. I was in the chess as a kid. And um, my dad was my chess coach. And then I was into baseball and my dad was my baseball coach. And so they were able to always have that kind of hands-on experience. Um, my mom was also an ethnomusicologist. And so I think that was that was interesting. I think that probably had more of an effect in terms of going to different, say, like parties that were a little bit more academic, but with a lot of different musicians and other things. I certainly spent a lot of time also, you know, growing up in the bookstore. But I think my my experience was more like I would use the bookstore computers to play Doom, uh, you know, early on or something like that. But um, it was it was pretty cool. So I think my dad had a group of people who split off in the early 90s and they formed AKA Books. And that was in the U district and that was in the church. And so that's where we got our first cat was like finding a stray that had come into the bookstore and other things. And then he split off. And when he started recollection books, that was his first, like my dad's first venture really starting his own bookstore. And it was general. And he had a couple of very cool people who would both work for him also like lived in the basement. The U district in Seattle is kind of cool. It's connected in with all these weird bomb shelters that kind of run under the streets and um, that extended out from the UW, I think from the seventies or eighties, and then they got all kind of shuttered off. But if you went into the basement, you could still get into these like weird old tunnels that would kind of go under the, under the street and other things. So it wasn't until really after that, that after my dad closed red collection books on the Ave, he merged in with horizon books. And then he really dropped down and focused specifically on radical content. So it wasn't really until later in life that I kind of realized my parents were really big on not wanting to press their own personal beliefs, you know, and letting me kind of create uh, and and decide for myself. And I think really randomly, it just happened that my good friends that I met in middle school, their families were Mennonite and also very radical. And so actually... Uh, our two families as we got older into high school and college. That was right around the time of uh, 9-11, the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war. And so we were very active together. And that would probably play a, a pretty, pretty large role on on my development. But a lot of that, I think, was also just luck. And certainly in middle school, I think I would do the thing where I'd carve like 
you know, uh, like the the anarchist A into my desk in middle school to be rebellious <laughs> um, without knowing that my dad ran the largest online anarchist encyclopedia. Um, <laughs> he ran this thing called the Daily Bleed, which was your daily dose of anarchist history, radical history um, that would be sent out as a newsletter. And he worked on that every day. So, Well, there's some irony there about uh, youth and rebellion. <laughs> I'm seeing some likely path to then discovering localism and, and bioregionalism. Uh, you started Cascadia now when you were in college. So you, you got to that fairly quickly. I'm wondering if, if you could share, if it's clear, uh, your origin story around, you know, beginning to think locally uh, as the way forward for human society. Yeah, I mean, so I think really it came down to, you know, I've always considered myself Traditionally, when I was in college and high school, I always considered myself an anarchist. Um, both of my parents consider themselves anarchists. That was a term that I think was really important to me of the idea that a lot of other ideologies, I mean, one, treat people as economic units, which I didn't really like. But the other part of it was, is that they were seeking to kind of take us like to overthrow a centralized power and replace it with another one. And anarchism to me was the only one that would devolve of power. And I think that that was like a really important thing rather than trying to replace it. And that kind of idea of, of decentralization and other things. And then it's funny, I just kind of say I got tired of arguing with people and debating with people. And what I always would find is that you, if you talked about the principles and beliefs, people would agree with you hundred percent. But the minute that you said anarchism, you know, people would back off. And so I think yeah. when I found Cascadia and bioregionalism, it became a nice opportunity where those terms weren't actually really concrete. People hadn't heard of them and people could kind of, you know, they identified with the principles and beliefs and all, and, and all of the other things that they were talking about, but they weren't being triggered. And so I think that power of language was very important in terms of how, of the pathway to kind of get there. I mean, I think it was interesting. I did, uh, I, I went to a very traditional high school Roosevelt High School here in Seattle, and I really didn't like it. And so it was, I think, as a junior, I jumped off um, and basically started attending Seattle Central Community College um, through Running Start full time. And that experience was probably one of the best experiences of my life. Uh, I, I liked it a lot more than traditional college and all the rest of it. And Seattle Central at that time was a hotbed for very radical professors, very leftist. It was also kind of on the heart of in Capitol Hill. And so when I was 17, I actually, I moved in with my good friend, Nate and Nicole, and a couple other people that we had met through um, a group called Not In Our Name, uh, which was very active at that point against the Afghanistan-Iraq war against Bush. And so that would have been probably about 2002, 2003. And that's when I first started going to Seattle Central Community College. And what was really cool is that was my first exposure into, I think, like higher level academia. And uh, it was so nice to go from like a high school environment that where people didn't really care, didn't take it seriously, into an environment where people were covered in tattoos, had gone, lived life, and then actually were coming back and they wanted to be there. Mm. And then not to mention that it was paired up with very radical professors who were tenured, small class sizes. I think the the class where I actually discovered Cascadia was a it was an eighteen credit coordinated studies program, you know, which combines four. So basically, that just means they took four classes and then would put it together. So you got your writing, you got your sociology, you got your history, all in one class, and you had four four teachers along with it. 
but it was using the the matrix movies which had just come out as kind of like a critique of capitalism and power and and colonialism and imperialism and uh it was it was a phenomenal class and we kind of you know looked at the panopticon and all of these other things but one of the books that we were reading was uh decolonizing methodologies by linda tui smith and it was a really cool book very thick very academic she's a maori academic and native who's really working to deconstruct and decolonize kind of the academic ivory white tower but one of her processes in that is these like 10 steps to living in a decolonized world and the first steps have to be that if you stripped away all reality what would you want the world you lived in to look like and i think it was right around that time that i also stumbled on the idea of cascadia and mm. I kind of just took it and ran with it and took it a little bit too seriously. And I was like, yes, <laughs> this is this thing. It's like, I'd want to live in Cascadia. And what does that mean? And at that mm -hmm. time, I think Cascadia was a very different concept. You know, this is back in the maybe the, the earlier days of the internet and maybe just as it was shifting. So so looking around, uh, there were like a few different websites that mentioned it. There was like a joke site that's still there that was kind of the Republic of Cascadia and uh, that had been formed for like a cryptozoology conference, you know, in the early 2000s. There was a, another website called the Cascadian National Party, which was started by a guy named John Phillips, which is basically like a leftist secession movement that had started September 9th, 2001. So it had a very short history. It lasted for about two days and then 9-11 happened and that just shut it, shut it down completely. But they had done the work to like create this beautiful like plat you know they had this platform they had all of these these policy points, and then the other big one was uh, Alexander Baratik had a very basic um, site on Cascadian bioregionalism with a few pages up on GeoCities, and then there was a Yahoo email group, and that was it. And there was no connection to the earlier movement, so I really scraped and scrabbled everything I could find and just put it together in one spot and started. First, I think it was called the Cascadia Independence Project, and then it became Cascadia Now, the Cascadia Independence Project, and then it became just Cascadia Now. And it started out as a little bit more of a traditional independence movement, secessionist movement, with the idea of Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia breaking off. And it actually was years before it really got rooted and connected into the more bioregional element. Uh, because a lot of that information just wasn't wasn't there, wasn't available. You know, I think with that, less about Cascadia, but also that was really formative at that time was most of my my history actually comes through street medicine. So being a street medic at different protests, we had a group of us that were really focused. This would have been about 2003, 2004. And um we were really focused around providing medical support for the protests. And we had one protest in particular where there was a group called the Black Cross, which was a group of um, doctors and nurses from Portland, Oregon. And they came up and did a street medical training um, just before a protest called LEIU. They kind of used this protest, which was not very big, but um, as kind of a testing ground. And because of that, about 50 people had just been trained in street medicine and we decided it was like a really important thing. And so that was like a really impactful and defining moment. So we started a Seattle street medic collective and 
did that for many years. And so we had a group of about 30 of us trained and untrained and all the rest of it. And we did a lot of work both locally in Seattle, but we would also have large groups of us that would travel for protests kind of around the country and then around the world, kind of helping with medical infrastructure. So we went to Scotland in 2006, I think, for the G8 protests there. Um, And that was pretty interesting in terms of, you know, being able to basically have to put together these medical infrastructures in international areas. And so we were in Edinburgh and Glasgow and and there were three eco camps that were kind of around this old Scottish castle. And then we had a group of us go to Germany in 2008 um, for the G8 protests there. And we had to set up medical infrastructure for about 80,000 people. And one of my street medic friends spent a lot of time at the People's Harm Reduction Alliance and the Needle Exchange Program. And we had a really good friend overdose and die in about 2008. And that was really influential and impactful for me. And I think a lot of people around me, then I really shifted my focus. So I switched it. I did a double major, switched to actually doing public health, which was kind of uh, an interdisciplinary degree through the University of Washington, and then shifted my attention a lot more to the needle exchange. And the People's Harm Reduction Alliance at that time was a really cool program. It was one of the only, uh, all the other needle exchanges in um, Seattle and King County are run by, or actually in Washington state, are run by the counties and they have county public health programs, which are governmental agencies. And the People's Harm Reduction Alliance was one of the only 501c3 nonprofits. And because of that, how they treated the issue of harm reduction was very, very different. And so they encouraged active and ex-users to be um, a key role um, at every level of their operation, including the people doing the direct outreach, uh, people on their board and staff. And that was like a really fundamental part in that the people who are serving the community are actually members of that community and know best for their own community, rather than a government coming in and doing it for them. The whole idea with the needle exchange is it's really geared around harm reduction. So it's just about keeping someone healthy so that they can make decisions in the future um, and then be able to make them because they're still healthy enough to do it. And not only that, it makes a lot of economic sense and that the amount of money you save from preventing things like hepatitis C, HIV, um, or, you know, keeping people out of emergency rooms, as well as keeping needles off of playgrounds and other things. Um, it's just so massive. It's just such a great, yeah, such an important service to provide. You have such an active history, such a, to me, like such a community work driven history. I guess what I'd like to explore a little bit more is, is where do you think you developed this fire in you for community work, for, for service, do you have any idea what gave you so much drive for all of this? Because I think that is it is fairly unique for somebody to to do so many things and to put themselves out there. And do you know where that drive came from? I think that when people get involved with things that matter to them, it just becomes an integral part of of who they are and what they're doing. I will say though that you know it is interesting that I think there is a big difference in what I now see as regenerative work um, and a lot of that early work. And I think a lot of that early work can still be very siloed and it can also be very draining and 
there are high levels of burnout. I think, especially when you, I think you can be in some of these situations and when you're in those situations, they can be like the best experiences of your life and the worst experiences of your life. It can be really forging experiences and bonding experiences as you go through things. There's like also a lot of negative elements of that too. I think there's a lot of drinking, smoking, um, drug culture, addiction culture, burnout, because it's not regenerative and it's not um, sustainable. And I think it's meant to be like that. And I think, you know, if if a lot of it too, I think there's a difference in, and it's all important work, right? Like it's all important to set lines and resist like the things that aren't working. But I think there's also a big difference in going out and creating the systems that don't exist rather than just working within the systems and protesting. I think all of your time and energy can be spent arguing against a broken system and it can just, it just sucks people dry. Do you think it was maybe like burnout that, opened you up to seeking a more regenerative work? I would certainly say that the Cascadia movement, especially in the early years from 2005 to 2013, 14, was created in a way that was the opposite of all the negative and toxic organizing I saw through this kind of more radical Seattle alternative scene, because there were a lot of toxic elements and problems as well, and kind of a lot of what I would call totalitarianism of ideology it gets very insular and what i see as is it's a a culture in which a lot of really negative elements can thrive narcissists and other people who are very egoistical can really go up to the top and so my counter to that was the cascadia movement and i really wanted to use that as an opportunity to build in a lot of the best practices around transparency accountability and as it's grown also community I think community is such an important part of it and really supporting each other as humans. How have you expressed in art some of these things that you've been doing over the years? Because Cascadia now was also really big into art. A lot of that just has to do with the role of, uh, you know, I think you probably touched on this with your interview with Claire Atwell, but the importance and role of community art um, in, in social change. So my good friends that I met in middle school, I was just very, you know, randomly lucky that their their family is very artistic. So their mom mm-hmm. uh, was an art teacher for 20 years and really focuses art, um, art and social change and uh, the role of art within that. And so art has always been a, a played a really important part. In terms of my own art, what, what I've come to think of my own art is really actually creating spaces where groups of people can come together and create art. With Cascadia now, the first thing that we did, you know, through the art space, I think I took over the art space in maybe 2014, 2015. We had a large uh, Sasquatch that we got to create for the Fremont Solstice Parade. And that was really nice. And so we had about 40 of us come together. And since then, though, it's also been a space where we can explore different types of art and the role of it and how it can bring people together and then also make things more artfully effective uh i think some other examples of that would be we had the shell no was a really large protest that we helped host we hosted one of the three days of resistance for it here in 2015 the first day was hosting an art session and a lot of that was actually like was inspired by um the wto protests which were held here in 1999 during that protest they created a lot of life-sized turtles that were running around 
And these turtles getting tear gassed and um, beaten by riot police was one of the big kind of iconic photos. And so with the sh Shell No um, protests, which were against Shell was bringing in an oil rig and an Arctic icebreaker, and it was being hosted in Seattle before it was going up to Alaska. Mm -hmm. And so there were three days of intense protest. And so each different kind of group and had a different sponsored a different day and then had a different theme. So the first day was all about creating art for the weekend. And that was the day that we hosted. And it also fell on our Cascadia day. And so we had, you know, a couple hundred people in a park making art, making puppets, making, I think we also did seagulls. So we did like seagull hats and uh, made turtles, turtle shells and turtle hats. And then the second day was really powerful. So that was the kayaktivism. Um, that was probably about 800 people out in kayaks and canoes and boats, physically blockading the the shell oil rig and then um all of the different coast salish um nations came out with their different canoes to kind of lead the kayaktivism really what you know we were looking at there was was how can you create iconic moments and how can you help shape the narrative that gets created around the the protests um in terms of the pictures being taken um and what gets mentioned what's the focus so often when I hear stories about what happens in the Pacific Northwest and Cascadia, I'm so impressed by the, uh, the engagement, like the passion of, of people to participate. Now you are investing, you are serving in this role to bring organizational capacity, um, coherence to Cascadia as a whole. And this effort was born initially out of your collaboration with Claire Atwell, another community artist who you came together with to put together a project for the Edge Prize. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that and how the Edge Prize led into Regenerate Cascadia? Yeah. So the Edge Prize was a really interesting experience. It was um, a process that was hosted by the Salmon Nation and then the Terran Collective uh, done as a eight-week program that gathered roughly 140 different edge walkers from around Salmon Nation doing regenerative work or that were community leaders in some different way that were kind of riding the edge of where that change might be able to happen. And during that process, it was really interesting for Claire and I because we we actually didn't know each other. And so it created this really interesting opportunity to come together, connect and then to partner. And it was really exciting for both of us because Claire is in Victoria, BC. I'm in Seattle, Washington. And so it got to create this cross-border collaboration around an artificial boundary that really doesn't exist. And it's at the heart of the Salish Sea, which we both share, and it's a watershed that we both share. So during that process, it was a really inspirational time but we kind of noticed a, a few things off, off the bat and things that we really wanted to work around. And I think some of the biggest parts of that was that people were coming together and it was this amazing, inspiring experience. But we were really worried that afterwards the momentum would blunt and kind of end and that a lot of us have experienced these one-time events that are really powerful, but there's no scaffolding for what comes before it, how it's put together and what comes after and so we really wanted to challenge ourselves to, to say, how do we create a really powerful event, but also carry that momentum forward and not just have it die off and not just have everybody just go back to their lives like nothing happened. And so another 
event that had happened earlier that really was part of that was this 2022 November Regeneratives Communities Network Global Summit, which was, again, one of these really amazing experiences hosted by Ben Robert uh, and a team of four people, Isabel Carlisle and, and a few others. And uh, it had gathered like a thousand people. It had 140 sessions run through two weeks, every different time zone, every different time. But the problem was, is that it just wasn't connected into place. And there wasn't that scaffolding afterwards. And so we wanted to take some of these lessons and then apply them and really challenge ourselves for what would that look like for here in Cascadia? How could we tie it into place and really make it about the work that people were doing? In addition, the other big thing that we noticed through the Edge Prize was that there were so many people out there doing work that were doing the same types of work that had not connected between each other. There were people who were a mile away from each other and had uh, never heard of, of work that had been happening for years. In addition, it was regenerative, it was exciting. And so Claire and I really wanted to take the two different things that we were going to apply for for the Edge Prize, because the Edge Prize had all these prizes in different categories, I think at, at, uh, at different scales, different levels, one you know, one large prize. And then I think about nine or 10 different like category prizes or other things that could start that initial seed funding. So Claire had invited Joe to come to Victoria and we thought that was a great idea, but that let's expand it out. And it was just after Joe was finishing his, his tour of the Great Lakes you know, my challenge is always if if the Great Lakes are going to do it, uh, you know, you got to give us a chance to do it better. Take that Great Lakes. Um, <laughs> so Claire and I got together and kind of dropped our individual projects and came together. And initially, oh, what was it called? It was called, I think it was called Activate Cascadia. And then, um, and people weren't quite getting it. It just like, and and people really felt like, oh, this is just someone coming in from outside and, uh, you know, you know, we're already doing the work and so we don't need to be connected. And I think, which was really interesting because we got that quite a lot, that there's a, there's a sense in communities that have been active for a long time that they're already doing the work, they're already doing all the things. But even in those communities, what's funny is, is sometimes are they connected in with the First Nations? Are they connected in with, with other projects? And there are projects that literally they don't know of and they just assume that they, they've, they've connected with everybody. Our response to that is always, obviously, we haven't quite figured it out because otherwise we'd be living in this perfect world and wouldn't have climate change and wouldn't have this, this global climate catastrophe. So none of us have quite figured it out, even if a lot of us have, have gotten pretty close. And then the other big framing that we can use that was really powerful was not just taking what happened, what was working in one watershed, but how do we take those and connect them across watersheds? How do we connect them across landscapes? So Activate Cascadia wasn't quite working. And so in it was in a room with uh, Claire and Megan that we came up with this idea of Regenerate Cascadia and that Regenerate moniker, which um, which we were then able to use. I think that as I was discussing a little bit earlier, there's a big difference between, I think, regenerative work, which is building these systems, which is the boots on the ground. And a lot of it's really simple because the most simple thing is that nature doesn't stop at the end of a private property lot, right? It doesn't stop at a fence. And so oftentimes, a lot of this stuff that we're teaching and learning, and it's really unlearning, is the easiest thing in the world. I kind of sum Joe's talk up as he's like traveling around and he's like, 
here's a shocker. You live in a watershed organized by a watershed and everybody goes, whoa, you know, <laughs> their minds are blown, you know, and it's, um, and sometimes it's that really simple like tick that just, it shifts our thinking out of these arbitrary nation state boundaries and borders that don't make sense that by working within them, it's divisive. It doesn't work. It creates competition and scarcity. And I think the Colorado river and great lakes are both really good examples of this, where you have an international boundary running through it. You have different states which are competing for very scarce resources rather than coming together in a bioregional way, which would look at the whole watershed, everybody impacted, and then work together to create a management plan and start with that holistic nature. And so what I think the power of a lot of what we're doing is, is that it just really makes sense. It's how nature works. And that when you also start bringing together those information sources, it, it makes a lot more sense than what it currently exists. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you were able to meet leaders in many different watersheds, all the while looking forward to serving this role as convening at the Cascadia scale, bringing together all those these watersheds. Did you uh, gain any insight or do you have any clear sense of, of how you're going to serve that role uh, after the tour? Was getting on the ground and meeting people uh, informative uh, in any particular way? Yeah, I think it was really powerful. Uh, Bioregionalism has always been said to be a story from many different voices. And I think yeah. hearing the, the inspirational stories from many different voices, but weaving them together as a coherent narrative, I, I think is, is so powerful and so important because there are so many people out there doing the work and they each bring a different perspective. And um, when you create a container where they can come together and connect with each other is, is so powerful. The other really cool part is these are all amazing people. And a bioregion really is the largest place where those physical connections make sense, right? So yeah. it, it makes sense because someone in Bellingham can work with someone in Eugene and they can still drive, they can still talk. But when they talk about seeds, it's going to be the same conversation. And even if you go to the dry side and you start talking about food and energy, like that's where the conversation about wildfires and forest management really needs to take part. It's where the energy comes from. It's where the food comes from. So if you're talking about soil sciences and how that's impacted, but it needs to be on that scale. It needs to be on the scale of watersheds and bioregions because that's also how nature does impact these different areas. And it's how solutions and people can work together um, to really find these place appropriate technologies and ways of living that can be regenerative and not extractive. Yeah. So what do you see is next for you in pursuing this mission? Yeah. So our big focus is, is now to really do the work to launch Regenerate Cascadia. Um, we've gotten all of this tremendous buy-in. And I think, you know, what's incredible is out of the people that we worked with, we really worked hard to scaffold from the beginning to get people involved and to mobilize people into a system and container that is now empowering them after the process is over. So we've always said that the activation tour and the summit is the beginning and the, the start of a conversation, not the end of one. For us now, it's our job of one, we want to do a lot of documentation. We want to really go through and create an artifact which can be used by other people. We want to create templates. We really want to document what worked, what didn't work. We want to create a budget so that we can share our expenses of how much things cost and then be able to share that out. And then we want to create the document also for everybody who participated so that they can see the amazing work of other people. And what we did was just a little snapshot. It's just a little glimpse into each area. And now I think really starts the real work. I think we're going to do that through two different structures. 
our big focus is going to be watershed congresses. So in each local area, we want to have a weaving team and a, an idea of an actual congress. The broader goal as well will also support this idea. I think I've actually used this term guild, and I think we will also have this idea of guilds of specific focus areas um, that can span across watersheds. So you have a local watershed hub that can do many things, and then you would have a guild which would span across watersheds and focus on one topic. So that'll be things like bioregional mapping, bioregional education, bioregional media, certainly regenerative finance, Web3, that kind of stuff, uh, a Cascadia seed guild. Those are different work groups that could emerge out of this process. In terms of the Congresses, then, what we're also trying to create are local watershed bodies which can do a few different things. The first is develop a story of place that can help get people active and dig roots and deepen you know, their connection to that place. I think that especially living in America, we have an especially transient culture. We move around a lot. And because of that, we don't know where we live and we don't know the history and we don't know the context. And so to really help connect people in, I think it's almost a race of helping create a connection to authentic bioregional history and culture versus a corporate algorithm served, very shallow American culture or Canadian culture. And what's really interesting about that is that through our Cascadian organizing for so long, um, we really get two types of people who want to get involved. And it's people who have grown up here, who have lived here, who want to protect the, the things that they find special because they know how wonderful it once was. And then there's people who have moved here in the last year or two. And they are looking for a deep and authentic way to hook in. And they are looking for a real culture. And uh, they've moved here for a reason. The really interesting thing is that they cannot find authentic culture because everything is filtered through an online digital platform where it, you know, things are being served on a pay-to-play basis. And so because of that, corporations, businesses, can really get their information out there, but there's not actually a lot of ways to authentically connect with other people. And th those things exist, but it takes a lot of looking and a lot of digging in. And so I think for us really presenting that that way that people can root in is is really important. All of that to say on, on that side tangent was uh, to, to jump it back is that that story of place is a really important component. Other things that watershed groups can do are, are things like developing an informational commons. So we need to be creating our bioregional framework so that we even know where the changes are that need to happen. What are the different um, areas that, that we wanna talk about? How do we measure inputs, outputs, and whether we're being successful or not? And how do we define the metrics for success? And then lastly, I think the a real big focus of Regenerate Cascadia will be the creation of a bioregional regeneration fund. And so what we need is I think that, that that fund and money and being able to pay people and support people in this work and create that paradigm shift of where we're not asking people to go out and work a 40 hour a week job and then volunteer their time for their of what the planet needs is really important. And being able to have a fund that can support not only the weavers in an area, but actually provide funds that can be dictated by regenerative projects and communities themselves by what they need as defined by them, uh, I think is really important. And then I think that really gives us the teeth um, so that when we're creating these decision-making frameworks, then what we're really doing is talking about governance and creating alternative forms of governance. That's our big goal with Regenerate Cascadia and what we're going to be working to build. And the thing of it is, is that none of us have the answers or solutions. 
So we're letting a lot of this emerge as we go, as we meet people, as we develop this. And there is so much knowledge and wisdom out there in the communities. There are going to be different insights. There's going to be different ways that people do things. There's going to be different tools that are getting used. And what we need to do is have an effective place that we can come together, share, learn, and fail. And I think that that focus on being able to fail is uh, is really important, is that we're going to probably need to fail a lot of times before we actually get it right. And so we need to have space where we can do that together, be gentle with each other, and then pick each other up and uh, and keep going when we do. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm down with that spirit, yeah. And so with all that said, sharing, learning from each other, Brandon, are there any resources that uh, we can share with our listeners regarding how we can support you, how we can support Regenerate Cascadia, how we can follow your story uh, and, and learn from all that's happening. Yeah, my best recommendation would be just to go to regeneratecascadia.org and uh, follow along. If we're doing a good job, we should have a um, proceedings document there and we'll have a lot more to come. But everything about our journey and the summit um, we're trying to document and share so hopefully it'll be freely available and as we continue to get active hopefully that'll be very easily accessible and if anybody wants to support um, you're always welcome to donate all right great well thank you thank you brandon thanks for all that you do yeah thank you for having me here today we'll see you soon Thanks for listening. If you're feeling a jolt of inspiration, if you'd like to support Anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all this can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and please tell your landscape we said hello.